America. The Sprint Network is now more reliable than ever, and I'm on a mission to prove it's the fastest. I'm traveling the country betting anyone and everyone that Sprint is faster than their network. And Sprint's winning. The Sprint LTE network is now more reliable than ever. Switch today and stop overpaying for wireless. Visit a Sprint store or Sprint.com slash network to learn more. Offer coverage not available everywhere. Speed claim based on analysis of average delivered download speeds using Nielsen and MP data. Savings on select plans. Restrictions apply. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the T with Chris Mascaro. The show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming back and joining me today on Next on the Tee. We know you have a lot of choices out there for shows to listen to, and we really appreciate that you've chosen Next on the Tee to be one of them. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today, 2003 champion Sean McKeel is back with you to share more of his insights and experiences with us, plus answer more of your questions as well. Sean's going to be with me here in just a few moments. Following Sean, Dr. Joe Parent, the author of several books, including Zen Golf and Zen Putting, is going to be with me. I'll talk to Dr. Parent about ways that we can all relax and calm our minds when we're out there on the golf course, plus some techniques to help us block out any of those negative thoughts that try to creep in into our minds in between uh, shots. He also, he's got a new book that's set to come out here shortly called The Best Diet Book Ever, which is pretty timely right here after Thanksgiving. So we'll talk about all of that more when he joins me here around the bottom of the hour. So, folks, we're going to have a lot of fun again today, this week on uh, Next on the T. It's going to be another insightful show for you. I'm so glad that you're here to take the journey with me over the next hour or so. Okay, Next on the T, you know, is brought to you today by our friends over at Seymour Putters. We're going to get things rolling by hearing a word about our friends from over there. Golfers, has this happened to you? Great drive. Perfect second shot on the green. Only the three or even four putts. Shaking your head all the way back to the cart. I have good news. Help is on the way with the Seymour Putter. The Seymour Putter Company patented RST technology sets up the putter perfectly every time using a visible gun sight on the top line. Genius. It's like locking radar onto the target, in this case, the golf hole, putting the golfer in perfect position to make a reliable and consistent stroke. The 1999 U.S. Open, 2007 Masters, and 2015 British Open champions all used, you guessed it, the Seymour putter. So if you're ready to make more putts, take strokes off your game, log on to Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and put a Seymour putter in your bag today. Yeah, like Joe said, check out their putter technology to help win now three majors and 36 tour events and counting because, like Joe said, this year's men's British Open champion was using a Seymour putter and it's going to help you make more putts too. I know it's helping me. Check them out online at Seymour.com. That's S-E-E-M-O-R-E.com and get one in your bag. You're going to be very glad you did. We are also sponsored by the French Lick Resort up in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and to just relax and enjoy yourself. Well, you're not going to find a better place anywhere on the planet 
than the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com and see for yourself. I had the wonderful privilege of taking my family there back in June, and we are already looking forward to the next possible time that we can get back there. The resort, it's historic and it's beautiful. It's got wonderful gardens out behind the resort, a relaxing rocking chair porch all across the front of the hotel, and the golf, my friends. Oh, my goodness, the golf. The Pete Dye course is kept in championship condition year-round, and they could be ready to host a major championship at a moment's notice. This year, they hosted the Senior PGA Championship plus the LPGA Legends Championship. So if you've always wondered what it would be like to play in a major, you can do it there at the Pete Dye course. They also have the Donald Ross Design course, which is fantastic. It's the site of Walter Hagen's PGA Championship victory back in 1924. Also have the Valley Lynx course on the property that dates back to 1907. So the French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. And oh, by the way, folks, they got a casino right there on the property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Allen Edmonds, maker of quality made in the USA shoes. Folks, the shoes of great leaders from the Oval Office to corner offices to stage and screen and promising cubicles all around the country are part of what make people successful. The right footwear is important on the carpets and the hardwood floors of our global economy. Get it right with made in the USA quality and value from Allen Edmonds. Allen Edmonds is an American original. They've been making shoes right here in the USA in Wisconsin since 1922. They've got some great Black Friday specials going on, on in their stores and on their website, allenedmonds.com. Right now, several of their great shoes on sale. The City and the Thomasville, both 50% off. They are terrific uh, interview shoes, particularly for our servicemen and women coming back uh, interviewing for their uh, first civilian roles. So check them out, allenedmonds.com. And speaking of our military, let's kick off today's show like we do every single week here on Next on the T by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military. We want to thank all of you for your daily sacrifices for what you do every single day to keep the rest of us safe. We also want to thank our veterans for all you've done for us over the years. We truly appreciate everything that our military personnel do to preserve our freedoms and our liberties. Folks, it's through your strength and your efforts that our way of life is even possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have Next on the T be a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also want to remind our veterans, please, Check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. It's a wonderful site with news and articles and a wealth of information specifically designed for our veterans that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Again, check it out, globalvoiceforveterans.org. Okay, now back with me on the Seymour Putters guest line is our friend and 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. For those of you who haven't been with us recently, I want to remind you again about Sean's accomplishments back in the early part of the 2000s before injuries sidetracked his playing career. From 2000, and 2000, to, from 2000 to 2007, he obviously won the 2003 PGA Championship at Oak Hill. Three years later at the 2006 PGA Championship at Medina, he finished second to Tiger Woods. He had a third-place finish in 2002, so it's not like he came from out of nowhere to win the 2003 PGA Championship, as some uh, would have you believe. In all, over that eight-year stretch, he had 17 top 10 finishes, 48 top 25s, and he won over $7.3 million in prize money. And let's not forget that he came back from injury in 2010 and, and had three more top 10s and five more top 25s and won another over a million dollars that season. So I want to keep reminding our golf fans and some of our members of our media, 
Sean McKeel is far from a one-hit wonder because there weren't many players better than Sean from 2002 all the way to 2010. And if it wasn't for Tiger Woods, and I know many guys out on the tour can say this, but Sean would be a, a two-time major champion right now. And he's next on the tee with me again this morning. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hey, good morning. How are you today, Chris? <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you and a belated happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Yeah, I think I'm finally starting to get a little thinner now. It took me several days. I tried not to no eat doubt. too much this year. Oh, no, I tried not to eat so much this year. I only had one plateful, but it wow. was a big plate. Yeah, so <laughs> it was good. We good. It was, it was really good. So I hope everybody else enjoyed their enjoyed their holiday as well. Absolutely. Thank you. And and Sean, you know, I want to get right into it because, like I, I've said to you over the last few times that you've joined us, we've just sort of been inundated with a number of questions for you, and uh, we haven't gotten to all of them. So I want to make sure we we do a better job this week at getting to some of the questions that we've had backlogged yeah. for you. And our first question this week kind of goes back to your shoulder injury, and I know you talked about that several times here on the show. But uh, the question from a couple of weeks ago is, Sean, did you hurt your shoulder on a particular swing or situation? Uh, a situation or was it a result of just sort of wearing down over time? Uh, I think, you know, Dr. Andrews told me it was just kind of a repetitive use injury. Um, interesting question because I get that a lot. Um, it's not one particular instance, you know, um, you see players, um, you know, on the football field or whatever, that can pretty easy to document when they got injured. Um, I, I do recall in, it was, it was uh, at Bay Hill at Arnold, uh, Arnold's tournament there in 2007. I had a pretty good 2006 and uh, <clears throat> played all the way up through, you know, the end of November, I think, and then kind of shut it down a little bit. But um, in 2007 at Bay Hill, my teacher, who I was working with at the time, Matt Killen, um, asked me, watched me hit a few balls, and he asked me if I had changed my swing. And I says, no, what do you mean? And uh, he said, well, you know, your swing's a lot lower than it has been, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. My shoulder's kind of acting up. It's just kind of stiff, and I'm just, I've been trying to loosen it up. I just can't get the club up right now, and so I didn't really think too much about it, but, um, you know, it's, uh, so it must have happened at some point at the end of 2006. Um, Like I said, it didn't hurt that bad. I mean, over time, it started to hurt, but no, I, I don't recall any specific time uh, that I, that I hurt it. It just, it was just an overuse um, it did start to pop a little bit, and those are the things that people in my group noticed. I think Boo Weekly was the first person to, to mention something to me. Uh, I was number seven at New Orleans. We were playing. I hit one to the right on a par five, and he asked. He finally asked me what my that popping noise was in my shoulder, and uh, that wow, was two thousand seven as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was. It was loud. Anybody could hear it. I mean, it sounded like. It sounded like if you if you snap your fingers uh, real lightly, that's what it sounded like. It sounded exactly like that. And uh, I got used to it, but the people in my group, uh, you know, they didn't get used to hearing that. Uh, Joe Ogilvy actually was uh, playing with Joe Ogilvy in Charlotte in uh, 2008, and um, people in the crowd could hear it. And he asked me, he said, I've been listening to this for 11 holes, and I've got to know what is wrong with your shoulder. And... Um, there was a person in the uh, uh, that followed him. It was a uh, in the medical field had heard it as well, and um, it was that next week that I went and had the MRI done in Jacksonville. So, long story, but yeah, it was a it was a repetitive use injury. Wow. All right. And and Sean, you know, sort of a follow up question was, 
you had a pretty big ordeal to go with with the PGA with respect to the medications you were taking when you got the injury. So if, for folks that don't know that story, talk about the ordeal you had to go with, you know, had to go through with the PGA because of some of the, you know, medications you were prescribed. Well, a lot of that, a lot of that, all of that started, and I'm assuming that you're referring to the testosterone, the hormone replacement yeah. therapy. That, you know, that yep. all started in 2005. And you know, I don't take them anymore. Um, you know, I've, I've been forced to get off the medication because of my heart surgery. Um, but, um, you know, I uh, just basically was, uh, had not been feeling very well. And, and uh, I, I thought a lot of, like my shoulder surgery, I thought a lot about this other stuff. Um, if I could pinpoint any type of day or, you know, or any type of event that really kind of led me down this kind of negative path. And, um, in 2005, I mean, I had a really good 2004 and I just wasn't feeling very well. And, um, you know, just a lot, there's a lot of stress, a lot of things going on. And, and I suppose some of that, uh, or maybe all of that now may have been attributed to this low testosterone. So I, I, um, started taking it, it was prescribed by my internist in 2005. And, um, you know, it was after a blood test was taken. I certainly didn't, didn't know, uh, kind of what, was going on, but um, I was on it for a couple of years, well, three years. And then in 2007, uh, all of us learned that the PJ was going to be starting a, um, a drug program, a drug testing program, which um, may be a little late to the table, but, but nevertheless, that's what they were doing. So, um, you know, I started jumping through hoops um, really the moment that I found that out. Um, you know, in the end, I, I was I was given the TUE, the therapeutic use exemption, but that was after spending, you know, seven or eight months uh, at Johns Hopkins University. I spent uh, Dr. Dobbs up there. Uh, she's a kind of world-renowned endocrinologist. And then another doctor in Emory University who is also, um, uh, she also studied, um, you know, testosterone effects. Her, her expertise was mostly in geriatric patients. Um, but still, she was an expert on testosterone and how it, and it affects the, you know, the male body. So, uh, finally got that therapeutic use exemption, and and uh, you know, really took the medication um, until I guess December of 2013. Um, and uh, so, you know, it made it. I did feel I did feel a lot better on the medication. It, uh, you know, I, you know, I think over time. Um, you know, maybe some of the stress. It's hard to say what exactly the cause was. I mean, I, I was diagnosed as idiopathic acquired, which is it's not something that you want wow. to hear as a patient, which basically means that they don't really know. They don't really know what's causing it, you know. But in the in to be open-minded about it, I was really frustrated uh, with the process um, because, uh, well, one, I think it was new. Um, you know, I think I was probably the first one that was going through this, this process. So it was a learning curve for both myself and the PGA tour. Um, you know, I was told by the head of the program, Allison Keller, that no one in the history, I think maybe she said one person in the history of, of sport has ever been granted a, uh, an exemption for the use of testosterone, which is apparently the granddaddy of all, you know, I guess steroid based, um, drugs. Right. And, uh, you know, our our relationship, 
was very confrontational. It, it got to the point where uh, I, I finally just had to just kind of remove myself and, and told Allison, because my wife is an attorney, I said, look, uh, any other questions you have, you can just talk to Stephanie because I'm not going to answer anymore. I, I just, uh, well, the one thing I was shocked by was that the tour wasn't wasn't supporting me. Um, and look, I understand I understand all of the the negativity surrounding that, and the the levels of testosterone that I was allowed to be up to was a level of between you know 300 to 350 nanograms per deciliter up to maybe somewhere in between a 900, some people say 1,200. But I wasn't allowed to go like 20 times my normal level. I was just taking a very small amount. And um, I understood the connotations kind of associated with it. But I was also required to give two blood tests per year randomly. Um, They could call me at any time, which they did one time. They called me right before Christmas, two days before Christmas. And uh, my my testosterone level was was about 600. Now, I'm 35, 36 years old, uh, 37. Well, I'm probably 30. I see, that was 2007, yeah. So I was, you know, 38 at the time. And, uh, you know, my my levels were still about 600, and they should have been up around 800 for my age level. So, you know, everybody's a little bit different. But it was, it was a challenge. It was frustrating. Um, you know, I think the tour, I wouldn't say that they finally relented. Um, you know, it was just one of those things that uh, – I was frustrated by the process and also because I felt like the tour wasn't supporting me in, um, you know, everything that I was going through. It's not like I'm trying to cheat the game. I literally just didn't feel well. And uh, when I did everything that they had required of me, go to the doctors, and the doctors told them, hey, this is what we're, you know, we're experts in this field, and here you go. So there, there was some negativity, some some kind of lashback, I think. I don't know about from the players, uh you know, Gary Player, uh, you know, there was an article written in 2007 um, uh, in Europe, and uh, Gary Player was really a, uh, was was behind it, and he said that talking about all the people, you, that drugs are a big problem in, in golf, and with my picture on the front page. And oh. uh, that was, that got into almost a legal, almost a legal, uh, mess with that. Um, we had a few things rescinded, um, but um, you know it was frustrating to um, to kind of have to go through all of that. But I mean, I certainly understand. I understand, and it's it, a lot of people. You know, you know, kind of take this away a little bit. Is that you know, VJ Singh is in the midst of something right now, and it's a very complicated issue. But um, you know. If, if people that have not been through the process of uh, going through a, uh, trying to get a therapeutic use exemption, it's it's easy to comment from one side, thinking all oh, everything should be banned and kind of you know brush everything with a broad stroke. And it's it's just not that way. Um, you know, every individual case is different. We saw that with Doug Barron, you know, a friend of mine from Memphis here, and uh, you know, so there's a lot of things that uh, you're required to do. Uh, it, I'm amazed that the, the numbers of players, uh, all sports, that um, get caught up in these, oh, I took this supplement, I didn't know. I, I kind of chuckle at that because you know there's a drug testing program. I mean, I, Dr. Hossel is, I've probably talked to him probably close to 100 times. Am I allowed to take this, you know, especially with all this heart stuff? So it's right. really a long story, but it was, it was a very frustrating time in my life um, and, and a time that, 
you know, also then I had shoulder surgery. And it just, all of this came at such a bad time. And, and uh, it just added to it uh, just another level of, of kind of stress, um, you know, with drug testing and then be having a shoulder surgery and, and everything else. It all just came at a bad time. And, and uh, mm-hmm. so it's an arduous process to go through. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, a lot about the tour. I learned a lot about myself and and uh, drug testing and and all these other things that that uh, I didn't care that much about. You know, it was always about playing golf and uh, right. You know, so you learn a lot about different different things. I mean, you bury your head in the sand, which is I think is great. You know, hey, when you're when you're a young person out there playing the PJ Tour, uh, it's a, it's a selfish game as we've talked about. It's uh, you know, but when you have all these other things, these kind of extra things on your plate it's uh they're difficult to judge uh to juggle and um i was at the end of my five-year exemption for winning the pga in 03 um and so just the the stress and, and the wonder of, of the future of my career um was it over i just didn't know i didn't know how i was going to recover from the shoulder surgery and i've not recovered very well i i really didn't i um you know, I've had a tough time with it. And uh, even to this day, I, I still feel some pain in my shoulder. But um, anyway, just kind of a long a long process and a very frustrating one um, to boot. Sean, our, our next question is about Oak Hill. Ben Hogan once said the first hole there is the hardest opening hole in championship golf. And the question is, Sean, do you believe that that's true? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's the hardest one. I mean, it, I, I remember um, – you know, when I was playing there, I remember on Saturday, um, the wind was blowing left to right and the and the you know, the hole goes right to left off the tee. And I always seem to struggle with that. Um, you know, maybe right handed golfers do. I've I've always hit the ball kinda of straight, but I tried to hit some tried to hit some draw out there and I pulled it right into the tree that probably only went maybe two hundred yards off the tee. So I'm like, Well, here we go. <laughs> Saturday with the lead in the PGA, and here I'm already blowing it on the first hole. So, um, but you know, and I said the same thing happened on Sunday, and I decided to hit a three wood off the tee on Sunday, and I hit it right down the middle. Um, you know, those those clubs are a little bit easier to draw, but you know, it's a long hole. It really is, I, and, and uh, you know, it's probably I don't know, maybe four forty, probably maybe a little bit more right around there. But um, you know, there's a couple of trees out there straight away, which kind of gets your attention. Um, you know, so you're kind of thinking started these trees a little bit of a draw, but you know, you 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 just it's a very difficult tee shot. Um, but I wouldn't say it's the hardest hole because if you hit it in the rough, you either get an opportunity to hit it at the green, or you just lay up and you get a chance. So it's not a big number is not really in in your future uh, on that hole. But um, uh, you know, for someone uh, <laughs> like Ben Hogan to have said that, he must have felt felt something similar but he also was a fader of the ball too he gave up his hook in order to, to be the accomplished golfer that he became and uh yeah if you're trying to hit a fade off that tee you better hit it high <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a tough hole it's a tough hole for a cutter that's for sure and sean i want to take you back to your, to your victory there i saw a video uh recently with uh, charlie reimer and some of the other folks uh, from the golf channel and they were talking about their favorite PGA championship memories. And Charlie Reimer tells the story of how, you know, back in the time when, you know, uh, when you won, there, there wasn't a, a uh, there, there weren't wire transfers of monies. Uh, you know, back then the PGA tour still mailed you your winning yeah. check. 
that you had to go and, and, and make a deposit at the bank. What, what was it like for you to go out, hey, go out to your mailbox and, and have a letter from the PGH and then find out your winning check for a lot of money was still in there? Was that a surreal sort yeah, of moment, well, both on the surprise and the fact that, wow, here it is? Yeah, well, I think Stephanie was home. I, I had, um, you know, I had left. I'd gotten back in town for that short day or two when the the World Series of Golf, when it, it when it was uh, the week after the PGA, and I had flown home because I wasn't I wasn't in that event, so I'd already had the scheduled flight home, and um, um, so Stephanie was was at home to receive that check, and she got the check. And I can't remember if I'd have to ask her if it was a if it you know because I think I won a million and eighty thousand dollars but you know New York has withholding tax so I don't know I can't remember if it was a million eighty or if it was that minus the withholding um, for some reason I'm thinking it was the full million eighty but that'd be a question for her but yeah they did they started doing the wire transfers just not not too long after that but um, you know I do remember when Stephanie tried to go deposit that check we we. Uh, She's trying to figure out what to do with it, and um, I think we, because uh, I had a good friend of mine was doing a, a lot of my investing at the time, and um, so I think that I think the check went into the bank and directly into the account in Nashville, Tennessee. So it was pretty interesting, but uh, yeah, I mean, they always enjoyed taking those checks by, but but it's it's um, uh, yeah, now it's it's all it's all done by a wire on the Wednesday. Everybody gets their Monday money the Wednesday after the tournament. So whatever you win on Sunday, you get it on Wednesday afternoon. It's there waiting for you. Wow. Well, you know, and, and I know you, 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 I think you told this story once before, but for those who haven't heard this story, what was it like for you walking into the bank trying to make that kind of deposit? Well, like again, it was it was Stephanie. I mean, Stephanie was was the one that, that would have that would have made that deposit because I was out of town. Um, you know, but. Um, so you didn't walk in you know, with the just, check in your hands? No, she, she did. <laughs> you know, so I think people were kind of like, I think the manager was called and and everything else, but uh, they're kind of like, what what is this? And then of course you know <laughs> I can't I've been imagine the teller looking days. at that going, you want to deposit what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know I think just <clears throat> by that point, uh, by that point there had been a been a lot of uh, you know I've done a lot of things in the radio and on the TV and. And uh, and things like that. So I think people kind of kind of knew who who you know the McKeels were, I suppose. But um, you know, I, I suppose talking to her, she's probably got a much better story about it than I do. <laughs> and speaking speaking of, of your wife, we had another question this week regarding her, and the question is, Sean, how does your wife deal with all the traveling that you? How did she deal with all the traveling you had to do, and even still today? Well, I guess that's a good question because today is my 17th wedding anniversary. So, I'll, oh, I'll say how that. about but, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, we got married in uh, 1998. Um, well, you know, it's it's difficult. It's uh, it's not easy for um, spouses and families to adjust to a golfer's lifestyle. Um, as I told everyone before, I've known Stephanie since she was I don't know 11 or 12 years of age. And uh, she's always known me as a golfer, always uh, whether high school, collegiately, or professional. And um, you know, she's a lawyer. And when when we got back together in uh, about 1994, I guess, you know, I got my PJ Tour card uh, for the first time. And so um, she was still in law school, and and um, I think she started law school in 19 uh, the end of 1993, I think. 
And um, so she was doing her thing, and I was traveling, and she was so busy with with what she was doing, and um, that you know our communications via the phone were were totally adequate. And um, of course, uh, as as the years go by, we got married, and uh, it wasn't long. Matter of fact, it's, we got married in November of 98, November 28th, and so I, I left promptly like the next week to go to, I think went to Hong Kong to play. I was playing the Asian tour at the time. So I hadn't even uh, I hadn't even been married a week, and I was already on an airplane to Hong Kong. As a matter of fact, I had uh, always wondered what it was like to play golf in a wedding ring. And so we were playing the Pro-Am on Wednesday, and I played a couple holes. I'd made a birdie in a par or something like that. And I, I was like, I can't play in this ring. So I took it off. And I always carry around like a little valuables pouch. So I put it in there. I promptly went on to shoot 58 in the Pro-Am. And uh, I wow. missed about a 10-footer in the last hole for 57. It was, a par, it was a par 70 golf course in Hong Kong. So although it was a competitive round, it was a legitimate round for the Pro-Am. But um, so I kind of chuckled at that, too, that – and I had the had the thing on for a little while, and I was like, okay, I can't play with this thing on. So, took it off and shot 58. So I've not I've not ever worn that ring since since. But um, at least on the golf. But you have course. no superstition. But, well, that's right. I guess that is one of them. I don't know. You see, I, you know, I live with myself every day, so I, I, I guess I don't think of the things that I do as being superstition. You know, I just think of them as just kind of being quirky or unique to me. But. Um, you know, it, it's it's uh it's it's difficult. It really is, and and as the dynamic, the family dynamic changes when from marriage to having a child, was really one. It was difficult on me because um, Stephanie, uh, that was November of 2003 when Dade was born. So um, they started traveling with me almost almost right away when he could start to travel for that next season, and that was a challenge um, for me. And um, you know, you go from from being by yourself and and basically setting an alarm and getting up when you need to get up to, you know, baby crying in the other room and they need to be, you know, he needs to be fed and and I'm waking up and uh, it really really was a challenging time for me. Um, But as far as us being apart, I think she loves it more now than ever because I've been been home for almost two years, Um, you know, played a few events and I, being home, I, I screw up the routine, and now I think I'm with the routine now. So it'll be just about time for me to kind of get out of town again, and then and then uh, you know I have to come back and you know start taking the kids to school. But it is it is it's a tough it's tough it really is. Um, it's not for everybody, you know. You see it, and you see the divorce rates and and athletes and other entertainers and. You know, people in general just probably a little bit higher than it used to be. Uh, marriage is tough, and it, it, it's. Um, but I'll tell you this: when I I made a commitment that when um, I remember in I was playing in Myanmar, um, and playing in a turn a, a, an event on the Asian tour, and uh, talk about a, a place far away from home. Try going to Myanmar and uh, the former Burma. And uh, I made a phone call to Stephanie, and I'd made a commitment that I was going to try to call her every single day. I didn't care if it was for 20 seconds or however long it was going to be. I was going to make that commitment that if I was going to be doing what I was doing, that I was going to let her know that I was thinking about her every single day. And so I did that, and it was something like 8 or $9 a minute or something like that to wow. call 
big call from there, and it might have been a little bit more than that. And uh, I just told her, I said, look, you know, I'm fine. And I said I wasn't going to do it again, but I think I continued to call. Uh, I just felt like it was those are important things to do. It seems so innocuous to everyone probably, but I think just to make a commitment to show the, the person that you're, you know, you're in love with and you're married to, that it, you, uh, you're not just, hey, I'm going off out of town. I'll see you when I get back. And uh, that happens a lot. Um, you know, but, uh, even, even to this day, I mean, there's, uh, you know, in, in all of my time with Stephanie, and it goes back to 1994, and I would say maybe, maybe not even 50 times, and that might be high, that we've not at least spoken once during the day. So it's a commitment that you make, and uh, it's a big commitment to, to be away from your family. So you've got to do the little things, um, you know, to, to help, help that, use that, uh, the difficulty of being away. So, so I continue to do that and, and uh, I love to do it. Sean, before we let you go, and I know you've, you've got, uh, you know, you're, you're a dedicated university of Memphis, uh, football fan, and you're going to mm-hmm. go out there and sit in the rain, which, uh, which shows your level of dedication at today's game. Before we let you go, please remind our listeners again, how they can follow you online and over social media. Uh, Twitter is at Sean McKeel PGA and Facebook and LinkedIn. You can just type me in there, Sean McKeel, and and you can find me there. Um, I really, as I've said before, I I enjoy I enjoy the social media. I'm not as active on it. I think it just uh, I like to read up and see what's going on in the world. And um, hasn't been a whole lot for me to report lately. But hopefully, here in 2016, we'll uh, we'll have some more for me to to, to report about my golf. There you go. Sean, thank you so much, uh, you know, for joining me again this week. It's always a privilege to get to spend some time with you. We look forward to catching up with you, you know, again, as your, as your schedule allows. In the meantime, uh, I hope you get to enjoy the game. I don't know how you can enjoy the game in a pouring down rain in Memphis, but God bless you for being out there supporting uh, the University of Memphis Tigers. Uh, have fun with that, and uh, we look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you again, hopefully pretty soon. Well, thank you, Chris. That sounds good. So I'm uh, going to go spend an afternoon with my father-in-law and, and uh, root these Memphis Tigers on. All right. Take care, Sean. Uh, we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Thank All you, Chris. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. See ya. That's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Again, um, please let us know. If you got questions you want Sean to answer on the air, you can find us you know, on, on Facebook, on uh, on our site, Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Uh, you can find me on Twitter to tweet some of your questions for Sean, at CT Mascaro. As Sean said, he's at Sean McKeel PGA as well. He loves, uh, loves hearing directly from you. So uh, let us know. We'll get your questions on the air. All right, uh, before we get to our next guest, uh, Dr. Joe Parent, we're going to get to him on the other side of this message from our friends over at the French Lick Resort. You just can't beat this weather. The leaves are starting to change. It's the perfect time to get away to French Lick Resort and play the courses the champions play. This year, the Pete Dye course at French Lick has hosted the Senior PGA Championship and the legends of the LPGA Championship. Play our Donald Ross course and feel like 1924 PGA champion Walter Hagen. Fall is the perfect time to play the courses the champions play at French Lick Resort. Book our Hall of Fame package now at FrenchLick.com. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. 
Now joining me on the Seymour Putters guest line is Dr. Joe Parent. Dr. Parent is the author of several books, including Zen Golf, Mastering the Mental Game, and Zen Putting, Mastering the Mental Game on the Greens. He's also a keynote speaker and executive coach. He also does life coaching, performance coaching, mindful awareness training. He's a sports psychologist on the PGA and LPGA tours, and you can get a a personal golf lesson from him in person or via Skype. He also has a new book uh, about to come out called The Best Diet Book Ever, which we'll talk about as well. And I am very excited that he is here and next on the tee with me this morning. Good morning, Dr. Parent. Thanks for being a part of the show. Good morning, Chris. It was fun to uh, uh, listen in a little on uh, Sean McKeel's interview. And uh, I know Sean from out on the tour uh, around 10 years ago. I was in Rochester. I was working at the PGA Championship at Oak Hill, and I was working with Vijay Singh and with Carlos Franco that week and uh, and saw the final shot. I saw Sean uh, hit that, that uh, shot right next to the pin. Um, wow. You know, those are always amazing shots, but uh, you, you got to know that uh, he was probably aiming a little bit to a little bit further towards the middle of the green than where it ended up. So <laughs> those those are those are great shots. But Sean's a wonderful guy. I've known him uh, out there for years. I haven't talked to him in a long, long time, but uh, I wish him success. I guess it's uh, senior tour time. Mm, yeah, he's a, he's a couple of years away, but he's certainly making the preparations. We look forward to hopefully getting to watch uh, him uh, out on the on the web dot com tour next year, and as we prepare for the the uh, Champions Tour a couple of years from now. But thanks for mm-hmm. sharing that story. It's uh, it's certainly one of the great shots in uh, PGA Championship history. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Doctor Parent, let's go back to the beginning with you with the game of golf. When did you first discover the game, and who sparked your interest? Oh, I, you know, I I played as a, a young teenager, probably a tween, you know, like 11 or 12, and um, uh, and just got out. There was a little pitch and putt course near our place that uh, the, the the mothers took the kids out to and gave them a nine iron and a putter and said, you know, have at it. Um, and then I played with, uh, uh, I like to tell the story, I, I learned from my father uh, who shot in the low 120s and uh, didn't keep score that carefully. So, uh, so I've got a pretty homemade swing, and it comes and goes. But uh, uh, I guess because of that, I focused so much on uh, on the mental game, and and my background is in psychology. So, uh, right. getting to put both of those together, uh, and and to use the training that I had, uh, I started when I was around 20 years old, so uh, several decades ago, to study and practice in the Buddhist tradition of mindfulness and mindful awareness. And to be able to share that with people and use that uh, in the golf world and and use golf as a vehicle to communicate to people ways to have more peace of mind is really what my goal was in writing Zen Golf. Uh, I, I had no idea how successful it would be, but you know, people say, hey, this isn't just a golf book. Uh, it's a life book, and, and that's what my intention was. And you earned, for those who don't know your background, you earned your undergraduate degree from Cornell and your Ph.D. from the University of Colorado in social psychology. So to, you know, to your point, Dr. Parent, was, was your intent to always understand the mental side of golf, or did your interest in psychology and the game just sort of, you know, one day just sort of meld together? Yeah, they came together. You know, uh, golf 
was a recreation. I, I, I always loved to play. I was at the University of Colorado, and I never I never went up to Vail or Aspen to ski because I felt like if I did that, I'd probably hurt my back or my knees and not be able to play golf. So uh, so I sacrificed that for, for golf. But, boy, summers in the mountains in Colorado, there's some great golf up there. I, I, I have a great time. So... Um, uh, I, I never really, I never really got good, you know, got to a lower scoring. I never had broken 80 until I started working on the mental game principles. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I played golf with uh, one of my uh, mindfulness teachers, uh, and he would keep encouraging me to use your mind on the golf course, make it an, an ally instead of an enemy. And being able to change the level of focus, the level of readiness and commitment to each shot um, enabled me to uh, to get down and, and start shooting in the 70s. And, uh, and that's that's the, the crux of the game for me. And then, of course, the mental game, uh, any golfer will tell you, the closer you get to the hole, the more the mental game comes into play. Because you can, you can recover from a not-so-good drive. And if you miss the green, you can still recover. But if you hit a poor chip, you you don't have the opportunity to save a stroke. And nobody can recover from a missed four-foot putt. So so the closer you get to the hole, the more the mental game becomes the the, the key. And, and that's why uh, most of what I teach is short game putting uh, and course management of how to manage yourself around the course and, and manage your emotions uh, through the course of a round. Dr. Perrin, I, I'm a big Jack Nicholas fan, and you mentioned in your acknowledgement of the book, you, you thank him for the inspiration of his unsurpassed mental game. Talk about the influence that Jack Nicholas had on you. Well, the, everything that he did and, and the way that he played, um, <clears throat> he was intimidating not because of any particular swagger, but because if you saw his name on the leaderboard, you knew that there was only one direction he was moving, and that was his score was going to keep going down, that he did not uh, shoot himself in the foot. He didn't make the kind of mental mistakes. And what that did was it caused the other players to say, oh, I've got to play extra good, and I've got to make sure I don't make mistakes. So then they were doing the two things that get in the way of – of golfers when they're playing well, they try harder to keep hitting especially good shots and instead of just trusting their swing. And they're careful not to make a mistake, which means they start guiding and getting tentative. And both of those send them backwards, and that's why Jack just kept moving past and won so many tournaments and, and won so many majors. Uh, it, it was that was the way that he played, and and I use one of his quotes. You know, imagine if you if you never got down on yourself, never put yourself in <clears throat> in too much trouble, and the modern version of that that we've seen on the PGA Tour is Jordan Spieth. His his mental game and his attitude and approach remind me very very much of uh, of Jack. In fact, you know. Um, one of the past champions is, was famous for uh, dropping f bombs, but the, the, <laughs> the, the most the most upset Jack would express would be, "Oh, Jack!" And you hear it from the, almost the same thing from Jordan's feet. Oh, come on, Jordan! You know, and, right? and that's 
that's it, it's it's totally PG on 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 camera and on air, and uh, you know that that's that's something to be said for the character and and Sean in your interview before reminded me of a commitment that Jack Nicholas had made, and that was that he would never be away from home for more than two weeks at a time. No matter right. where he was, no matter what tournament he was, even if he flew home, even if he was there for an hour, <clears throat> he was going to come home to Barbara and the kids. And um, Barbara Nicholas is somebody who's very, very dear to me. I think she's one of the most wonderful people in the world. And if it hadn't been for her, there's no way Jack would have won as many majors as he did. Because no. one of the things that he said was, his most important preparation for a major tournament was peace of mind. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Parent, one, one of the quotes that we talk about a lot on this show is the one, you know, uh, attributed to Bobby Jones about how competitive golf is played mainly on the five-and-a-half-inch course, you know, the space between our ears. And And you wrote a little different twist on that. You wrote in your book, it says, no matter how sophisticated their equipment or their knowledge about the swing, if golfers don't know how to work with their minds on the course, they encounter the common mental obstacles that keep them from realizing their potential. Performance anxiety, emotional reactions, and distractions interfere with a golfer's ability. Overcoming the obstacles is the key to breaking through to lower scores. Talk about, you know, how, how can we, you know, the, the, the weekend in recreational golf, how can we break through? Well, the first thing to do is go online and uh, or go to a bookstore and get Zen Golf. <laughs> I, explain, I explain it all all in there. And, and really, uh, what I do in Zen Golf is I break it into uh, three main parts, uh, which I use the acronym PAR, Preparation, Action, Response to Results. Uh, we get in our way in preparation because we start looking at the hazards and try and we play avoiding golf rather than positive target golf. We, um, in our preparation, we might not be certain about the shot we want to play or the club we want to play, and we go ahead anyway. And that's that's one of the uh, expressions that I've taught that's become the most famous, avoid the anyways. If you get up there and you're not comfortable and you go ahead and hit it anyway, that's an anyway. And they almost never turn out well. So, so one something you can really very simply do is keep track of your level of readiness and commitment to the shot you're planning to play. And I, I work with Christy Kerr. She just won the season-ending CME Globe Tour Championship. Um, and, and in the interview, she talked about exactly that. And, and Christy and I have a formula. If, she's, if she hits 80% of her shots, if she's fully committed and ready before the shot, on 80% of them, she's in contention. 90% of them, she wins. And when she won the LPGA Championship by 12 shots, and all the other players said she was playing a different course than they were, she shot 19 under, and the next lowest was 7 under. Wow. Um, at that tournament, she said there were only six shots that she hit in four rounds. So that's about 98% fully committed. Only six shots that weren't fully committed. And and that's when you set records, and that's when players like Sean sh- shoots the 58, and um, it's full commitment on every shot. And that doesn't mean you're going to hit it perfectly, but it means you're completely out of your own way and getting the most out of whatever level of talent you have. The next section is action, <clears throat> and that is can you swing without holding back? 
if you have that kind of commitment, it frees you up to swing without holding back, not wildly, but with no guiding, no manipulation, just trusting your swing. And then response to results, you don't get bent out of shape, you know, about a bad shot. You try to learn from it. I mean, one of my sayings is, you can't hit it straight if you're bent out of shape. So, so we <laughs> use our go. breathing. We use our breathing before the the shot to settle ourselves. We use the breathing after the shot to calm ourselves down and learn from it as best we can. And I have players <clears throat> make a replacement swing. Anytime they make a swing they didn't like, you don't leave that spot until you've re- erased it and replaced it with a positive swing, the one that you would have rather made. So you never leave a spot with a bad swing. Otherwise, you start compensating and fiddling with your swing all the way through. The right. And, and one of the early chapters in the book is titled Thinking Outside the Box. And I love the message it sends about changing the way we view our own scores. You talk about viewing our scores in relation to our own personal par for what we mm-hmm. typically shoot versus what's on the scorecard, which is a much more positive way to view ourselves instead of looking at our score in relation to, you know, actual par 72. Talk about how that can help us enjoy the game more. Well, it, it happened just the other day. I was out at uh, Riviera uh, playing with a friend of mine, Robbie Krieger of the Doors. We're, we're good golf buddies. He loves the game. And, and one of his friends was with us. Uh, we got to this one hole. We're playing into the wind. It's about 420, and uh, and the guy's not that long a hitter. And he said, oh, this is the hardest par four. I said, yeah, but it's not a hard par five. He said, what do you mean? I said, what's your handicap? He said, about, a, about a, a 12. I said, well, this is the number six handicap on the hole, so this is a par five for you. You get a stroke here. It's a, You shouldn't measure yourself against par for a scratch golfer your par on this hole is five. He said, oh, and he relaxed. He relaxed so much. And he hit a great drive, and he hit his second shot right up to the front of, from just in front of the green and, and chipped on and made the putt. And he said, that was unbelievable. I said, nice birdie. He said, no, I got a par. I said, no, you got a birdie because that was a par five for you. Right. So yeah, he, no. it, it just relaxed him. and made. He didn't have to press. He didn't have to try to force it. Yeah. It was an un. Otherwise, golfers play against an unfair standard. You shouldn't be compared. To, you know, if you're uh, if you're running if you're running a hundred yard dash, should you be compared to Usain Bolt? I don't think so. You're going to feel bad every time you play. <laughs> <laughs> so right. so what if what if a a twelve handicap, okay, comes in and shoots eighty two. You got 72 and 12 is 84. Guess what they get to say by shooting 82? I shot two under today. Right. How many 12 handicaps ever get to say I shot two under? Right. Isn't that, no, isn't that much great. better? Yeah. So you have more fun, and you relax, and you don't force it because you have more shots to get to the green. Uh, and it, it improves people's game just by changing their scorecard. Before the round, not after. Right. No, and that's and that's a fantastic way to, to frame it up. It certainly makes you feel better about yourself. And you also talk about what to do in between when you know in between shots, like when you know to help prevent negative thoughts from creeping into our minds. Give us some tips on you know getting rid of the negative thoughts as we are going between shot to shot. Well, you know, trying to push negative thoughts away just feeds them. That it gives them energy. It's like a uh, it's like some uh, a kid who's uh, kind of teases you at school, 
when you were at school, and if you if it gets to you and you react, oh, that just invites him more. But if you ignore him, he gets bored and goes away and bothers somebody else. So in the same way, instead of trying to fight your negative thoughts, just recognize them and say, oh, you again, and don't get all worked up about it. You know, uh, the thought, oh, I hope I don't hit it into the woods on this next shot. You go, oh, you again. You say, okay, how can I play this shot that gives me the best chance for for my best score without taking an unnecessary risk? Mm. And and then you take the hazards into account, but you pick a target that gives you room to play. And as soon as you have room to play, then you relax. And if you're not forcing it in tight, if you have room to play, you relax and you make better swings. So I'm sure when Sean hit that seven iron to within two feet on the last hole of the PGA Championship, he wasn't trying to hit it within two feet. He was aiming a little bit. It, it, the pin was on the left. He was aiming towards the center of the green and said, if, if it's going to draw, it's going to draw. If it goes straight, I'm good with that, which, which let him make a free swing and let it draw naturally over to the hole. So, hey. so that's what we want to do. We want to give ourselves room to play. And between shots, uh, you know, don't don't aggravate yourself ahead of time. You know, when you miss the if you miss the green and you get all you, you get all worked up, instead just say, okay, so I'm going to get ready for my short game. But in between, where I hit it and when I get up there, why don't I look at the green complex and look at the slopes and look at the area and, and just take in the beauty of this golf course. And if you do that for a few seconds in between each shot, you actually enjoy the course and you don't spend the unproductive time of worrying about the next shot. I was walking, you know, we talked about Jack Nicholas. I was walking with him uh, at the uh, qualifier. His son Gary was trying to qualify for the PGA Tour. And I said, you know, ask him the same question between shots. He said, boy, thinking about golf, for four and a half hours straight is not only boring, it's unproductive. So after you hit the shot, learn from it what you can, and then think about something else and look at the scenery and walk around until it's time to play your next shot. Wow, that's great advice. You know, I, you know, certainly when you think about, you know, to to the point that you just made about Jack Nicholas, when you think about, boy, all I'm going to do is think about shot after shot after shot. Boy, it, it certainly tightens up your mind and to to free your mind to kind of, you know, uh, bring in, you know, the beauty of the golf course and the surrounding areas and that sort of thing. I got, I got to believe that ta- that relieves a lot of the tension, and then exactly. allows you to exactly. kind of bring it back. And, and you know, great. you talked. You, you talked about his mental game, and, and one of the things that that um, is really the strength that golfers need to develop, and and they can train themselves. Uh, I talk about that in Zen Golf, uh, of how to train yourself in the transitions. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a there's a transition from the the practice green to from the range to the tee. That's the transition that almost everybody has a hard time with. Why can't I? Why can't I play on the course like I play on the range? And 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 I actually cre- created a video called "Taking Your Range Game to the Course." And so you, so be able to handle that transition because how you hit the ball on the range is different than how you hit the ball on the course. So I have a technique for the last few minutes of what you do on the range before you go to the first tee. Then for each shot, you have to use your thinking mind 
to prepare for the shot, figure out your yardages, pick your targets, what side, you know, what side of the fairway do I want to play to if the pin's on this side of the the uh, the green for for the the lower handicapped golfers, and mm. and do all your thinking, and the wind and the elevation and all of that, and then make a transition and turn your thinking mind off, and turn control over to your instinctive mind, your uh, you know the the natural what psychologists call subconscious, but I like to call it you know turn it over to your body. Your body knows how to swing the club if you stay out of the way. Your thinking mind stays out of the way. And then there's the transition after the shot of how you process what just happened. And then the transition, as you talked about, of going from that shot to the next one. And right. you think that Jack Nicholas focuses uh, for, tw- you know, every, every second for 18 holes. But his skill was to be able to let go of the last shot, relax in between shots, and then refocus on the next one. So it's the transition, being able to shift your focus from golf to something else. Uh, I worked with Tim Petrovic on the PGA Tour when he won the New Orleans Open. Uh, I guess it's the Zurich Classic now. Um, And his brother was on the bag for that week. It was a bit of a change. And they talked, he's from New England, they talked about the Red Sox between every and and about... uh, um, the Patriots and about all the new other New England guys, sports teams in between all the shots. And yeah. that let him relax and be fresh because after four days of tournament golf, by the time you get to the back nine, you're out of gas if you've been focusing too hard. You've got to have some relaxation time in there. You also commented, I saw on uh, on your Twitter account about you. Know, you mentioned Jordan Spieth a few moments ago about you know his practice of looking at the hole instead of you know down at the ball and short putts. Is that is that something you think we should all give a shot to? I have a way to do both, and and that is your your brain doesn't know the difference between an image from your memory and an image that your eyes are looking at. So you can okay. you can try right now if you just imagine um, a, a room in your house. Picture the room in your house. Yeah. You're there. You're in that room. You're not where you're. So right. if you if you look at the hole before you putt for about right before you, you you're you're all set up, and I talk about this in my latest book is how to make every putt, and the technique is to look at the hole for two or three seconds and really imprint the image of how far away it is. Then you look back down towards the ball, but you bring back that image to your mind so that even though your eyes are looking toward the ball, your brain is looking at the hole. And and you, your arms and body can respond to the picture in your brain of the distance to the hole. And then it's the same as if it's the same, you know, how many yeah. basketball players would be looking at the floor while they shoot a foul shot, a free throw? Right. You're looking right. at the rim. You're looking at where you want to shoot it. So that lets you have an athletic stroke towards that target, and that's really all Jordan's doing. And and by the way, when he's looking at the hole, he's not just looking at the hole. He opens up his peripheral vision so he can see the ball, the length of the six feet of grass and the hole, because he doesn't do it from any further than six feet away. 
Right. You can try it yourself. You can try it yourself. If you set up and you look towards the hole, but then you open up your vision and out of the if you're a right handed golfer, out of the corner of your right right eye, you'll see the ball as well as the hole. You see the whole thing rather than just one piece of it, either the ball or the hole. So I believe that's Jordan's secret of what he's doing. Yeah. He's not just looking at the hole and, and not seeing the ball. He's seeing the the hole with a W whole thing. And I see on your Twitter account, which is at Zen Golfer, a, a number of junior golfers that you're working with who are achieving some really great things. Talk about some of some of those players and the value of kind of working with kids early to have a strong mental approach. Well, um, the relationship be- between kids and their parents some can, sometimes can be difficult. And the parents unknowingly, sometimes knowingly, but sometimes even unknowingly, put a lot of expectations on the kids. And they think that if they don't shoot a low score, they're going to lose, lose the approval of their parents, which is terrible. So if you're a parent of a junior golfer, you, your job is not to be a critic or a coach. You're just a cheerleader. And if they're having a hard time, you you clap and, and smile and say, you can do it. And if they're doing well, you clap and smile and say, you can do it. <laughs> that's, that's all you say. You clap, you smile, and you say, you can do it. Right. No matter what they're doing out there. Okay? But the yeah. kids take on and put a lot of pressure on themselves. And it gets them not trusting their swing and fiddling with it. And and the language of golf and the culture of golf is always to keep fixing and fiddling and fixing and fiddling and fix and and that that's no fun. So the I've seen juniors get burned out on the game and quit. So I want them to have the most fun they can, figure it out the best they can, and not get overly concerned about technique. Um pretty much by the time they're 13 and 14, they're going to have their swing and they're going to have their tendencies. Uh, and, and you'll see the guys on the PGA Tour say, well, that's how I grew up. This was my coach when I was a kid, and that's the swing I got. And, you know, I, 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 I've refined it, but that's my basic stuff. Mm-hmm. So for juniors, the most important thing is to have as much fun as you possibly can. And you know, here's one of my one uh, the quotes that, that's my, one of my favorites that people seem to really like, and that is, um, you think that you'd enjoy if only you'd play better, you'd enjoy it more. But it works the other way around. If you'd enjoy it more, you'd play better. Ah, that's great advice right there. You know, don't and, wait. And that, don't wait for the enjoyment until you play better. That's like that's like waiting your whole life till you're rich and then you're going to have fun. That might not happen. <laughs> Right. You know, don't wait till you get good at golf before you enjoy it. Start by enjoying it, and that will help you to get good at it. No, that's great advice. And 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 Dr. Parent, uh, like I mentioned at the top, you have a new book that's on its way called "The Best Diet Book Ever." What uh, what can we look forward to to reading in that book, and when is it going to be available? Well, uh, in Zen Golf and and many of my other books, I. It's called Zen Golf because I tell some Zen stories, which which are stories that reveal uh, the the nature of how our minds work, and what our expectations are, what our disappointments are, and what our joys are. So <clears throat> I use a lot of those stories, but the the main the main techniques that I offer to my students that I present in Zen Golf and and present in this diet book as well. 
is uh, the attitude that you take, whether it's an attitude of a poverty mentality or a richness mentality. Do you do you feel good about yourself and have the potential to accomplish what you want, or are you down on yourself and basically say, I can't do, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm never going to succeed. Well, obviously no. that second attitude is self-fulfilling. Both attitudes are self-fulfilling. So you have to say, I have the potential to be what I want to be. Uh, then the technique is mindful awareness. Notice what you're doing while you're doing it, and your patterns start to reveal themselves, and you start to discover the habits that you want to cultivate and the habits you want to change. And then I have something called, that I call the ninja system of necessary intention and non-judgmental awareness. It, it is a very unique, simple, easy-to-do, and very powerful habit-changing technique. Now, this habit-changing technique is particularly important in the world of dieting and losing weight. And uh, I started this many, many years ago, about 30 years ago, this particular technique of noticing what you're eating, how you're eating, while you're eating it, and noticing the choices that you make. And, and if you have mindful awareness, you don't react impulsively to urges and just eat because it's there in front of you or eat because you've always eaten and, and, and eat because, out of momentum and not be able to stop. So instead, you put in a little bit of time and space to choose, and then you decide, would I rather eat more or would I rather lay weigh less? And that's your basic, <laughs> basic equation. Would yeah. I rather eat more or would I rather weigh less? And if you make that choice, you know, sometimes there's a dish that is so good, you say, I'd rather eat that. But most of the time, you say, I'd rather eat, eat I'll have some of that, but I don't want to eat too much because I'd rather weigh less. Um, and there's some exercises that are reminders in the book, but there are no recipes and there are no menus because it's all about your state of mind. You can eat whatever you want, but the basic principle is, please, just eat a little less of it. <laughs> and exercise any way you want, just do a little more of it. And that's all you need to do to start losing weight. Yeah, very basic stuff. That's great. When When is the book going to be available, and where can we go and find it? We um, The galleys are done. We're doing revisions now. <clears throat> of course, you can always go to... You can always go to zengolf.com, but you can already go to thebestdietbookever.com. And you'll see previews there and an ability to pre-order. But, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, as of January 1st, and maybe sooner, um, so start looking, I'd say, uh, in a couple of weeks, middle of December. Start looking for it on Amazon and on Kindle. And we'll be, um, it'll be available, uh, very reasonable. And it's timed perfectly because, as you know, the most common New Year's resolution after the holidays is losing right. the weight that we put on. Right. The least successful New Year's resolution <laughs> is losing the weight and keeping it off. So right. we're timing this so that people, it's not a gift you really want to give people. Hey, here's the diet book. You need this. Um, but it's something that they'll want to get after the holidays. So it, it'll go. be your most, it'll be your best friend 
for the month of January. The best com. How can our listeners follow you both online and you know perhaps you know book a lesson or follow you uh, over social media as well? Well, if you go to zengolf.com, uh what you'll get is uh you can you can order the downloads of my audiobooks and my videos. Uh they're very reasonable and also you can contact the office and I do lessons all over the world by FaceTime and Skype. And they they're so close to being in person, it's amazing. So uh, those those are kind of my favorite things to do the the lessons. Also, uh, being able to share with more people at once. So being able to do keynotes at conferences and and business meetings, and executive and life coaching because it's about more than golf. Uh, on Twitter, it's at Zen Golfer, and uh, FaceTime, it's Zen Golf Mastering the Mental Game. It's the it's the uh, the book. Uh, I also uh, wrote a book earlier this year, if you're a tennis player, with Bill Scanlon, who's famous for playing the golden set of a a perfect set of tennis, that he's the only man to do it in a professional tournament um, ever, a perfect set of tennis. And he was famous for beating players like uh, McEnroe and and Borg and uh, other top players in his era. And we've written a book called Zen Tennis together. So uh, that's that you can find on bookshelves and uh, and on Amazon.com. Well, Doctor uh, Perrin, so, thank you. So you'll you'll see all of that on at ZenGolf.com. That's the basic place to start. That's great, Doctor Perrin. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's been a real privilege having the opportunity to to talk with you and then listen to your insights and have you as part of the show. I hope you'll come back again and join me sometime. I got so many more questions. That uh, I'd, I would, I'd love to I'd be get delighted. We, we, I'd be delighted. We can uh, uh, do it again pretty soon. Uh, let, let's uh, let's plan on it for January when the diet book's out. There you go. All right. Look forward to it, Doctor uh, Doctor Parent. Thank you for being here today. Happy holidays to you and your family. I look forward to the opportunity to catch up with you in January. Hear more about your diet book and uh, so many other things we want to talk about with respect to Zen golf and Zen putting as well. Thank you, Chris, and happy holidays to you and all your listeners around the world. Thank you very much. Look forward to catching up with you soon, Dr. Parent. Take care. Bye. That's Dr. Joe Parent, again, the author of Zen Golf, Zen Putting, so many other books. Great stuff. Uh, TheBestDietBookEver.com. Can't wait to uh, take a look at that and see what he's got going on there and get him back on the show hopefully uh, here in January. All right, folks, before we close up shop, I want to uh, remind you about uh, great things going on uh, with uh, our new partners over at uh, uh, the Salute Military Golf Association, PGA Tour Pro, Jim Estes, and the great folks over there doing some wonderful things uh, with members of our military. I want to, to play uh, the ad for them because uh, it's really fantastic stuff. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S. If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating 
listening, or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing things at the Salute Military Golf Association to Jim's Point. Please, to find out more information, go to smga.org to see how you can get involved. All right, everybody, my sincere thanks once again to Sean McKeel and Dr. Joe Parent for joining me today and making today's show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Please also check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear it on the Armed Forces Radio Network as well as Blog Talk Radio. That show, like this one, is also available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, and SoundCloud as well. You can find us on Podbean and, and so many great places around the Internet. We're joined every week on Thursday Night Tailgate by legends and stars that, from uh, both the NFL and the CFL. Please also check out both shows on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. You can find us online. This show, nextonthetee.net, Thursday Night Tailgate. is thursdaynighttailgate.com. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free and keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be by going on both shows' sites as well. So, folks, thank you so much for choosing to listen to today's show. We appreciate you guys the very most. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Christmas Carol, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.